like to ask you to bow your heads with me just one more time. And if you remember the words that we just sang, why don't you sing this with me? Oh Lord, You're beautiful. Your face is all I see. Jesus, we pray for the grace of Your Word now to abound to us. Wash us, Lord, with the water and the Word tonight. And speak to us and teach us, Holy Spirit of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight as we study, as we settle in, Israelis are waking up to Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, as I share with you on Sunday. It's the first of Tishri right now in Israel. So, Shana Tova. Well said. Um, I remind you, though, of the biblical name, not Rosh Hashanah, but Zikaron Teruah, which means a memorial of shouting, the Feast of Trumpets, a shouting, a blowing, a, a remember, a remembering or a remembrance of great joy. And I want to ask you all tonight, are your watches still synchronized? Are you keeping watch? Are your eyes wide open? Did anyone wake up this morning and say, Okay, tonight is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Might we go home with you tonight, Lord? I wonder about that. The the teaching caused a bit of a buzz. If you missed it, you might want to go back and, and if you've got an hour and a half, catch up online. But I want to clarify something about what we talked about Sunday morning. It is compelling to me, this whole idea of the coming tetrad, those four blood moons spread out across 2014 and 2015. Four blood moons in a row, a tetrad, a very rare occurrence. Hasn't happened since 1968. And it's compelling to me to know that the first blood moon appears on Passover 2014, the the second one on Sukkot of 2014, The next one on Passover of 2015. The fourth one on Sukkot of 2015. That's exciting to me to think about. Might there be something to this? Is God lining things up? We know that He gave the sun, the moon, the the lights in the skies for signals, as well as for seasons and times, dates of the year. And furthermore, eschatology does charge me up. I expect it does most people. When people here were having a prophecy update, they turn out. So we find these things exciting and illuminating and, and, and like I said, charging. However, i got to say that the blood moons of 2014 and 2015 could come and go without the Lord coming and without us going. Well, wait, but Rick, you said, no, I didn't say... <laughs> I did not say on Sunday that this was conclusive evidence that God was coming between 2014 and 2015. He very well could come long before 2014. Amen. He could come after. It could be a decade. And we're still here. And I would have to endure eight years of people coming up to me saying, see, you were wrong. 
The point is this, I am not looking for blood moon tetrads, I am looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, Titus 2.13 tells us. Sunday's teaching was about keeping watch. Now, I believe there may be something to this tetrad. The timing is fascinating to me. However, the point is not the moon, it's not the heavens, the point is Jesus. And the idea is that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And sometimes a little prophecy update rattles the cage enough to open our eyes and make us remember why we're here. We are here for one reason, brothers and sisters, one reason alone. And that is to live for Jesus. We belong to Him. We are to be about Him. Our lives looking for Him. We're not here to look at timetables, but to the Lord Himself. He's the focus of the watchman's calling. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a watchman. That's part of the deal. We are to go and make disciples. We are to keep watch. We are to stand on the wall and to call out both blessing and warning. To call out the Lord is coming, which to a follower of Jesus is blessing. But to someone who's living outside of the will of the Lord, outside of a relationship, it's warning. Let's call it what it is. For someone who does not know the Lord, for me to tell them about the Lord is a message of warning. You need to know Him. Yes, I know it's a message of hope and it's a message of love, a message of deep and great compassion and redemption that's waiting for them, but until a person accepts that, it's a message of warning. And while we may call out from the wall, warning the end is near, and this is the time of the signs, remember it's never about the hype. It's got to be about the hope. Our focus is not to get all into signals, but into the Savior. So as we proceed with prophecy, as we will all through this season now, we need to remember that. Chapter 33, I want to begin with verse 1 again. I know we took a look at the first nine verses Sunday, but it was brief. I have a couple more things to share on this. The Word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so that you will give a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That's serious business. Now, I'm not saying that that's the pressure that God puts on Christians, but it certainly was the pressure God put on Ezekiel the prophet. If I give you a warning for the people and you don't give it, I will require their blood of you. He is not messing around here. Isaiah and Jeremiah 
Ezekiel. All watchmen who sounded the alarm. All of these gave a clear and clarion warning. And all of these delivered their own lives. Whether or not anyone else listened was, well, a different matter. As we talked about on Sunday, these first nine verses of Ezekiel 33 begin with a restatement of the prophet's call. And you can track it back, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 27. The call is restated as it was in the beginning of Ezekiel's ministry, but now it's restated as both a vindication and a revelation. A vindication in that his previous prophetic judgments on Judah, on Jerusalem, on Israel have now all come true. As we'll see in just a moment, this chapter. It all comes to fruition. The judgment falls. Ezekiel was right. Vindication. As the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication, their rightness is from me, declares the Lord. People say, Rick, when you teach this kind of thing, you really think you're right? I know I'm right. Well, how do you know you're right? Because my righteousness comes from the Lord. Because this is His word. Because it's His message. It's His warning. It's not mine. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not that smart. This is from Jesus. My righteousness, it comes from Him, not from me. So Ezekiel has vindication, but he also receives here revelation. And this is the exciting part. And this is what I want to take a step further tonight. You see, with the fall of Jerusalem... You'd think at this moment that the warnings would be over and the watchmen could come down from the wall. The city's done for. Judah's history. The people are exiled. Job finished, right? But this is just the time where God comes along and He restarts the fire. He reignites the heart of the watchmen. He calls Ezekiel now to continue on. Yes, you were a watchman and you brought the warnings and you brought the judgment, but now you're going to continue to be a watchman, but in a bigger sense than we have seen so far. A couple of things to add to vindication and revelation. The third thing I would add here is location. Location. The fact that Ezekiel is a watchman for the house of Israel should tell us something. For the house of Israel. It's not for the house of Israel. Judah. Location. The ten northern tribes that had been destroyed, wiped out, nearly 200 years prior, back in 722 B.C., guess what? They weren't lost to God. They weren't dispersed and and no more before the Father. Those who say, and it's called British Israelism and there's different terms for it, but those who say the ten lost tribes, they're not ten lost tribes. There is Israelites known by the Lord and their location known by the Lord. Isaiah speaking to Israel, all of Israel, said in Isaiah 49.15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, the Lord says, but I will not forget you. Location. He knows where his people are. He knew then, he knows now, the whereabouts of all of his own. And you know, that extends a bit. He knows where you are. He knows where you are tonight. He knows where your heart is. He knows what you came in fretting about. He knows what stressed you out today. 
He knows what your concerns are this year. He knows where you are. And a woman nursing a child may even forget for a moment, but the Lord will never forget you. The next thing to note is salvation. Salvation. The tragic fall in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. was not the end. This call again, this renewed calling, directs the rest of Ezekiel's ministry now out future. He's a watchman to the whole house of Israel, but not in his day. Now he's a watchman for the house of Israel in our day. Looking out to the future, he continues to be a watchman. His voice continues to be heard. This is, this is just so amazing to me. I, I shared in prayer earlier, we had a baptism tonight down at the pond. The family who came up from Tacoma drove up here. They've been up here a few times. And I asked them, how did you even hear about the bridge and, and what's the story? Well, the wife in the family, her sister is Renee Bristow. Some of you know Renee. So they heard about the bridge from Renee, started listening online. And as they're getting out of their car and talking to me, the husband says, yeah, I'm in Nehemiah and she's in, uh, she's in Job right now. We've listened through Revelation together as a family. Now, I may have shared before, but ten years ago when we began studying the Bible here, and we began recording these messages, I almost felt silly. Because there were times when there were seven or eight people here on a Wednesday night, and I'm recording the message. And I would ask the Lord, Lord, why am I recording the message? And He would tell me at the time, and it didn't make any sense, you're recording because there are others who will hear. Well, we just baptized one of them tonight. That blows my mind. So now I've forgotten about that. I forget they're even online. I, I know the recent study that's online, but I forget that we've got a backlog. And yet the Lord never forgets. The Lord's salvation is renewed. The Lord continues on to future events. Sometimes things we do right now, we don't even know what's happening. Or how God is going to use it a decade from now. Should we still be here? Salvation. Isaiah 11, verse 11 says it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Alam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. Note that it's an important verse in the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah 11, 11, the Lord will again recover a second time. See, the first time is the recovery from Babylon when the people will come back into the land. When is the second time. It's future. We're watching it right now. Israel's in recovery, gang. It's not complete. More about that to come, but Israel's in recovery. The Lord is recovering His people. He says, He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What is going on In the tiny little postage stamp country of Israel today, the Lord is recovering from the four corners of the earth His people, just as He said He would. you really believe that, Rick, that we're seeing prophecy fulfilled before our eyes? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 23, verse 3. Actually, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Remember that word picture. We'll come back to it in a bit. The idea of the shepherd gathering his flock to his pasture. 
So Ezekiel joins the eschatological company, the end times prophetic company of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he's confirmed to continue prophesying, now focusing on Israel to come. Verse 10 picks up, and i got to warn you, it begins in a rotten place. The prophecies now of Ezekiel moving forward begin among a doomed and bummed out people. Verse 10. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And those who are stuck in the mire of their own sin, to those who are depressed, to those who are despondent, to the self-pitying martyr, which I'm sure none of you have ever felt self-pity. But the Lord makes this message very clear. Stop wallowing and repent. Are you bummed out because your life is just so messed up? Are you despairing because you just can't seem to stop sinning? Stop wallowing in it and repent. Well, that sounds awfully religious of you, Pastor. (laughs) Pastor. (laughs) It's not religious. It's turned back. Hear the word of the Lord. Turn back. Turn back. Just turn around. I'm right here. You don't have to sit there in that stuff. Repent. A couple things to note here. Number one, the repentance of the hopeless. God calls the hopeless to be a people who repent. He calls His own people, verse 12, You son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin, and he practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right. When it is in their own way, that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked man turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Now we talked about this. In fact, this parallels Ezekiel 18. You can go back and look at that same passage and he talks through this whole thing. The people in Israel had an idea in their mind that was messed up about righteousness and wickedness. And it was a very physical and natural idea that the righteous are those who look righteous and the wicked are those who look wicked. 
And God says, you can be the most righteous looking person in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, serving on all kinds of teams, but if you're sinning, you're not righteous. You'll die in it. And you can be one messed up looking dude. You can go walking in here with shorts and white socks and a t-shirt. Oh, I wasn't talking about... No. I, I didn't mean you, Spence. I really... No, that was all me. Um, you could come walking in here, not like Spencer, he's fine. You can come walking in like the dregs of the earth, but you know what? You turn to the Lord and you're saved. And that's the point here. And Christians, hear me, even after you've given your life to the Lord, it is not about your so-called righteousness. I'm not saying that don't that we shouldn't try to be righteous and, and try to do righteous things, but we get caught up in the religion of it all, trying to look the part. Don't look the part. Be the part. Amen. Just be with Jesus. Love Jesus, and the rest is going to take care of itself. Remember what he said? Love God and love people. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. But we get this idea, just like Israel, that we can look the part. And that's problematic. God says that's not the deal. In fact, there's just a there's a one word difference between righteousness and wickedness. A one word difference between the saved and the lost. And it's repentance. That's it. Turn back. Turn back, the Lord says. Just repent. I love the old Rich Mullins song. It's one of the first ones that he cut way back in his early days as a as a Christian singer-songwriter, ain't nobody so bad that the Lord can't save them. Ain't nobody so good that they don't need God's love. Great line. No one is hopeless. By the same token, no one is flawless. We all find our hope in Jesus. Paul said in Romans 3.21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So the repentance of the hopeless. Just repent. From the most seemingly righteous person to the most obviously wicked person, everyone needs grace. Turn around and receive it. But here the people are in the pit of despair. Both in action and attitude, the exiles are saying, the Lord's got it wrong. The Lord's got it wrong. How often in life do we hear unthinking people accuse God of unfairness? There's just a a, a cosmic unfairness out there in the universe. And that the blaming of God And oftentimes, God is blamed when life seems rotten. But here's something to note. The Lord allows rottenness to come because usually it's in that place that we finally start to get it. It's when we have nowhere else to turn that we turn to Him. Now, we may turn to Him complaining or whining, but we turn. And it's in that pit In fact, sometimes that's the only place where the fairness of God can be realized. When we bottom out. Sometimes things have to run their painful, purifying course. 
And so from the repentance of the hopeless, we go to the reality of the horror. Verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. January 9th, 585 B.C. You can write it in your Bibles. That's the day that the exile arrived because Ezekiel tells us in the twelfth year of the exile, on the fifth of the tenth month. January 9th, 585 B.C. It's actually been a year and a half since the burning of the temple, since the destruction of Jerusalem. It's taken a year and a half for them to get through the processing center, and then finally from there, I believe it was Riblah, to get from there all the way out and across and over to Babylon, a year and a half. And word had probably already reached Babylon that this had gone down, but now they have first witness testimony. First-hand evidence that the city's gone. The city, the city has been taken. Verse 22, now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came and he opened my mouth at that time that they came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer speechless. What does he mean? I was no longer speechless. Apparently a muting has, has taken place here. Now, a couple things to note about this. Emotionally speaking, Ezekiel makes it very clear from verse 22 that the Lord let him in on what was coming the night before the exiles or the refugees arrived. The Lord's hand was heavy upon me, he says. And in that phrase, and based on the context, you can kind of think, Ezekiel knew. Either Ezekiel knew that the refugees were about to flood into Babylon... Or he knew something heavy was on the way. But the Lord's hand was on him. His spirit was heavy with expectation. And so he may have sunk into deep, muted mourning. Do you remember how you felt on 9-11? Many of us remember exactly what we were doing when the towers fell. We watched them fall in real time on our televisions. Magnify that feeling... By a thousand. By more than that. I, I, don't, I truly don't think we can comprehend what it was like for the Jewish people to lose Jerusalem and the temple. Because this was not just their country. This was the temple to their God. This was their hope. This was their future. This was all they knew. And it was taken from them. Uh, imagine if it had been the Capitol building that one of the planes crashed into. That was apparently one of the targets. Imagine if it had been the White House that the planes had crashed into. Imagine, if you can, seeing hordes of brutal enemies camped out on the Capitol Mall as they have taken over all of Washington, D.C. Imagine the horror of the National Cathedral burning to the ground. I still don't think we can quite get to the same level of horror that the Jewish people felt when they lost their city, their land, their temple. And so as the refugees come in and say, the city has been taken, it's a horrifying moment. Perhaps that's part of what was going on. Ezekiel realizing this was all coming true, even though he had prophesied of it, it's all coming true. And now Ezekiel is just muted in the sorrow. Until until the refugees arrive. But there's one other thing you may recall back at the end of chapter 24. Look back there real quickly. Ezekiel 24, 
verse 25. Remember, we spent 24 chapters hearing the judgments, the warnings of the watchman Ezekiel in the first half of his ministry. And he's calling out all of this judgment. And it was heavy. And it got heavy all the way down to the last verse of it. But then suddenly in verse 25, Ezekiel 24, As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take them from their stronghold? the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters, that on that day, he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, some commentators think that from that moment, for the next two years, Ezekiel was mute. Could not speak. I disagree. Because from chapter 24 all the way through chapter 33, Ezekiel was speaking. He was pouring out judgments on the nations. Judgment after judgment after judgment. So what's this muted thing? Gang, for two years, I believe Ezekiel was mute on the subject of Jerusalem. Mute on the judgments of Judah. He could not, he would not speak about All of the judgments and what had happened and what was happening to the Jewish people, that was over. There was nothing left to be said and so he was muted about Israel until this moment. And what's marvelous is in the reality of the horror as it sets in among the people, suddenly now at this hinge point of Ezekiel's prophecy, his mouth is opened and it is opened to speak of Israel's glorious future. Isn't that great? That Ezekiel is cut off. No more negative words. Absolute silence related to Israel and Jerusalem. And then the moment that the refugees come in and the people are saying, woe is us, the city's gone, it's all over. Then suddenly, boom, his mouth is open again and he's talking about Israel, but it's all good. It's all hope. It's all future. It's all glory. It's wonderful. But will the people hear him? Number three, the response of the hard of hearing. The response of the hard of hearing. Two messages are immediately given here by Ezekiel as his mouth is opened. The first is to the people who were left back in the land, and the second will be to the exiles living right there in Babylon. Verse 23. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with the blood in it. Lift up your eyes to your idols as you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? They're saying, if God gave the whole land to Abraham, surely it's still ours simply by virtue of the number of us refugees still living here. There's safety in numbers, right? God speaks against that. In verse 26, he says, You rely on your sword. You commit abominations. And each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? 
Thus you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, As I live, surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword. And whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beasts to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate, so that no one will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they have committed. And you say, Rick, that doesn't sound very wonderful. It is a final message to those who are in the land. And the message is they think that because there's still a bunch of them there, more than Abraham, that perhaps they're still okay. And God directs them to their sin. Directs them to their behavior. I love the first one. You eat meat with blood in it. Who does that? Really? What is the matter with you? Those of you with the with the rare steaks, okay, that's going to annoy me to no end. <laughs> you know what? Is it because of the monitors being on? Is it Spencer? <laughs> Jim, just shut off everything but this mic and see what happens. Click, click, yeah. I'm going to give him a minute because that'll just bug me. Let, you know, I, I'm on a sidetrack anyway. This whole thing about... He says, you eat meat with blood in it. And seriously, there are a lot of us who like a rare steak, right? You cut into it and out the blood comes. Why would you do that? Why is that okay? Uh, Glenn, tell me. You're, you're a blood sucker. Why is that? <laughs> you like yours well done. Who like Okay. Okay, so so you guys are okay with that. You're, you like the steak well cooked. Get the blood out. Okay, who who raised their hand and said they like it with the blood? Mike, can you justify your actions? It's much more juicy than a burnt, dry piece of beef jerky. <laughs> it is more juicy, yes, but it is a violation of the law of God. Why would you do it? You like shellfish? <laughs> All right, back to Torah. Thank you. We are not under law. We are under grace. Eat all the blood you... No, I'm not saying that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear me on this. This is a total side note, but I saw that and I couldn't help but think about it. You eat meat with blood in it. What is it that you do that you do for law rather than because you're under grace? What are you doing in your life that is a legalistic thing? Think about it. Because I see legalism from time to time in the church and it amazes me. Well, I do this. Why do you do that? Well, because because if I don't, I might be in violation. No, I'm not talking about blatant sin. I'm talking about cultural stuff. Like eating meat with blood in it. Well, we can't do that. It's wrong. And Paul talked about that in Romans 14. I won't go there tonight. We don't have time. But, you know, some eat meat that was once sacrificed to idols and now it's sold on the market and they're okay with that. Big deal. Others can't eat that. That's fine. Whatever your conscience before God. My point is this. God has called us to live in grace. Let's not go back to law. Amen. Amen? All right. So where were we? The buzz is gone. Thank you very much, Jim, for taking care of that.
so this message here to the people, the people are saying we're in the land, there's still a number of us, more than there was when it was just Abraham. He wandered the land all by himself and God gave the land to him. Surely he's given it to us. And God's saying, no I haven't. And who's Shirley? (laughs) The bottom line is this, sheer numbers don't mean a thing. Head counts are deceitful. David learned that lesson, didn't he? David, toward the end of his life, thought he'd take a census to measure his military might. By the way, it was 1.3 million fighting Jews strong. David had himself an army. And he, he did this census. And we don't really know exactly what was in his heart, but it was wrong what was in his heart. I think, I think you can extrapolate that David was wanting to see how powerful he really was. You can read the story, 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. 70,000 men died of a pestilence sent by the Lord because of David's sin. Because David was into head counts, which is why I don't personally count our attendance. Seriously. Seriously, whether it's two to three hundred or two to three thousand, or two to three. Where two or three are gathered together in His name, He's there. He's there. And the power is that of the Lord, not of the number of people. Now, speaking of Gospel for Asia and the missionaries sending out into the world, we want to see as many sent out as possible. We want to see as many indigenous missionaries supported and encouraged and strengthened as possible. But I'll tell you what, if God sends one to a region, the region can be saved. Because God doesn't have the same economy that we do. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the strength of the Lord, and not by might, nor by power, Zechariah 4, 6. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So a personal question for you. What are you counting on? What are you trusting in? What is your your lean to? Is it strength in numbers? Or is it the power of the Lord? Sometimes it seems like numbers are, or, or the numbers are going the way of the world. The activists seem to be getting rather strong out there. When when Sweet Cakes by Melissa gets shut down in Oregon, maybe you saw the story. Sweet Cakes by Melissa was a storefront of uh, wedding cakes. They refused to do a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. And the LGBT community got so incensed and so vicious, they've had to close their store. Just because they as a Christian couple chose not to make a wedding cake for a lesbian wedding. And sometimes in this world in which we live, it seems like the activists are getting awfully loud. It seems like there's an awful lot of them. It seems like the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Don't forget, numbers don't matter to the Lord. He's not doing head counts. The majority doesn't count in God's economy. Psalm 33.16 says, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness. And so the message goes back to the people. Tell them it is not in their numbers that they should trust. The next message now is for those who are right there. Now listen to this, verse 30, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. 
They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words. Oh, this is great. They're finally trusting. They're finally believing Ezekiel, right? But they do not do them. For they do lustful, the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. Ezekiel is suddenly in high demand. The proof is in the pudding. The work has been done. It's obvious. This guy knows what he's talking about. He is spot on. And so the people are listening. He has their attention. The prophet's vindicated. But they're not doing anything about it. They're coming in droves to hear the prophet speak. And they're going right back to the same old lifestyle. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew eleven fifteen: To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What do you mean, Jesus? It's all pretend. You're like children playing games in the neighborhood. This is not a game. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a social club. No, we just kind of show up for so we can hang out with other people who are like-minded. It's not pretense. This is reality. And you know it's reality in someone's life when their life is being changed by the word that they're hearing. Where their behavior is modified when they walk out the door and make decisions that are different than the decisions being made before. When, as James wrote, they prove themselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's completely forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, and not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. It's like you look in the mirror in the morning. I've done this. And there's just a little hair. You know, it's there. You think, oh, i got, I got to make sure and shave that off. And then the kids call for you and, and you go out and you come back in and you completely forget about it. And by the time you get back in the evening, it's out here. <laughs> and you don't know it because you've completely forgotten. <laughs> I just want to give you some visuals to help you with the study tonight. To kind of carry you on through. And my wife, no, she just, come on. (laughs) Hearing the word. I mean, he says, my word does not come back to me empty. But you know what? It's got to come back to him. What do you mean, Rick? He pours his word into our hearts. Are we giving it back in the lives that we're living, in the conversations that we're having? Do we really believe what we're hearing so much that it's changing everything about our lifestyle, our behavior, our actions? If it's changing us, it's going back to Him. And it will be successful. Remember what I said at first. We had a lot of buzz on Sunday. I really wonder how much of that is carried over for three days. You all are here. 
And, and it's not even just about being here. I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it, who shows up Wednesday night, then we'll know who really listened. No, I wonder how many people woke up this morning and even thought about the fact that this evening began the first of Tishri. Even thought about the fact that today is the Feast of Trumpets. Even thought about the fact that Jesus could come at any time. A lot of people were thinking about it at least two or three steps out the door. But two or three days later, are we just hearers of the Word? Who like the people, oh, they listen to Ezekiel like he's a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. I can go to a concert any day and listen to good music and walk away and it doesn't change me. But this Word, this Word is meant to change our lives I'm not sitting in judgment of the fellowship. I'm just asking the question, how many people hear the Word of God and yet do not practice it? And I pray that I will be one who practices it. Now, I'll tell you what, to be fair, let's take it back to the teachers and the leaders. Ezekiel 34 begins with a heavy judgment, but not on the house of Israel. Not on the house of Israel, but on the shepherds of Israel. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Now, of course, the word woe here is is a sigh. It's a mournful cry. Woe. I hear it and I go, Woe! Woe, horsey! Wait up! Slow up! Either way, I think it works. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. First rule of bad leadership as far as the Lord is concerned is dominate those whom you lead. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become a food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Scathing. Shepherds of Israel. Eight times the Lord refers to my flock or my sheep. And those who have been given charge and care over God's flock have failed miserably. Paul said to the shepherds at Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And that, by the way, is the reason we call our leadership shepherds. 
It's, it's not so much for the church fellowship as it is for the leaders to remember what we're supposed to be. <laughs> elders kind of starts to make me feel a little more of an elder, you know. Overseer, bishop. I couldn't wear the word bishop unless I had a big tall hat. That's the only way I think I could do it. But shepherd. I picture a guy in a robe, he's got his staff, and he's out there. They smell like sheep. Shepherds smell like sheep. Why? Because that's where they are. They're in and among the flock. And truly, shepherds of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who realize they're just sheep themselves. That we have before us a chief shepherd, a true shepherd, but this comes to me as a cautionary word to anyone who would serve among God's people, be it Israel or the church. The sheep do not belong to the shepherds. The flock belongs to the Lord. And you may recall this, Matthew 23, Jesus' most fiery reprimand in His entire ministry was against the scribes and the Pharisees, the shepherds of Israel, who were doing the same thing that these shepherds are doing right here. What's the problem, Lord? Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Bad shepherds annul the word of God to fit their own sensibilities. Bad shepherds teach falsely to justify their own belief systems. Bad shepherds fleece the flock to feed their own satisfaction. And bad shepherds forget the flock belongs to the Lord and not to the shepherds. I love the scene. I'm just going to read this to you. But at the end of Jesus' stay on the earth, after the resurrection, He's there on the Sea of Galilee. He invites the apostles to breakfast. You remember the scene? They're out in the boat. Jesus is on the shore. And Peter sees Jesus on the shore. Shouts, it's the Lord. Jumps into the water, clothing it all. Swims across. Gets there, I'm convinced, at the same time that the rest of the guys do in the boat. (laughs) Looking Forrest Gumpish. That's my boat. And they sit down and they're just looking at Jesus and they and they eat some fish together. They share breakfast there on the Sea of Galilee. What a marvelous occasion. And in this poignant and potent exchange, listen to what Jesus says. Simon, son of God, and I'm going to read it the way it would come out in the Greek. Okay, Simon, son of God, do you unconditionally love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And he said to him, Then feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you unconditionally love me? The word is akapao in the Greek. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Pastor my sheep, shepherd my sheep. The word is poimano there. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, Okay, do you love me like a brother? I love that because Jesus uses the same word Peter's been using, phileo, brotherly love. Jesus meets him where he's at. Okay, Peter's not quite to unconditional yet, so I'm going to meet him at brotherly. Do you love me as a brother? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you as a brother. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And Peter never ever forgot this. And we see it come up in Peter's first letter. 
He never forgot the unconditional love call of Jesus. That Peter was in the place of brotherly and friendship love, and Jesus is trying to draw him into the unconditional. Come on, Peter, this is where it's at. Peter struggles with that. But in 1 Peter 1.22, he says to the people, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, phileo, fervently love one another from the heart, agapao. You know what he just said? You have brotherly love, move on to unconditional, because that's what Jesus wants us to do. Peter remembers this calling. And he never forgot the selfless shepherd's call. That Jesus says, Peter, if you love me, you'll shepherd my sheep. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And to my mind, the best shepherd is the shepherd who unconditionally loves Jesus, and therefore unconditionally loves the flock of God. But these shepherds were not that kind of shepherds. These guys loved themselves. They loved their own message. They were feeding themselves on their own flock. Verse 11, continuing on. For thus says the Lord God, and here's where it just gets beautiful. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is scattered when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. And note this, this is not a parable. This is not poetry. This is practical. It's actual. It's literal. It's real. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring them back to the mountains of Israel. I'm going to search for my sheep throughout the world and I'm going to bring them back to this pasture land. I will feed them, verse 14, in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. That's not a metaphor. And then they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. He's now said it three times. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. That phrase in verse 15, note this, I will lead them to rest is literally, I will cause them to lie down. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, David wrote. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Is it any wonder that the 23rd Psalm is still beloved even among non-believers? People love to hear that psalm. It brings some of the most peace of any passage in all of Scripture. I mean, who doesn't want that? And Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 verse 11, the Lord said, Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That is a prophecy of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who said in Luke 15, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! I found my sheep which was lost. And I point out all these different passages because we need to see that the Lord is wholly consistent from day one with His people Israel. Even calling Abraham a shepherd. All the way to present day, the Lord is the chief shepherd. The Lord is the good shepherd. The Lord is a shepherd at heart. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. And I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, John 10, 14 and 15. No wonder His birth, though heralded by angels, was witnessed by shepherds. Verse 16, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. This is further indication to me of that judgment of nations. Note that. I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. And Jesus drawing off of this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats in that judgment of nations, not of people, but of nations. And this is further reason why I absolutely believe the judgment is directly related to the house of Israel. That when Jesus says, Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Brothers speaks of his brothers, the Jews the Jewish people. And that judgment is predicated on whether or not the nation was in support of or opposed to Israel. Well, now he speaks to the leaders again, those bad shepherds. Verse 18, Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture? That you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures? Or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet. As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and with shoulder and you thrust it all the week with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock 
and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Judge between one sheep and another. Judge between the sheep and the goats. God is going to bring a recompense on this world for sheep, for goats, and for shepherds alike, and after that, the coming kingdom where He promises to install the shepherd king. Watch this, verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them and be himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, the one shepherd here is probably not David. But it's the son of David. This is Jesus. This is a messianic indication speaking of the fulfillment of that great prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 9.6 A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It is a messianic statement. This David, I, my servant David, will feed them. He will feed them himself. He will be their shepherd. And gang, there is one shepherd. One shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the Son of David. As Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 3, of the seed of David according to the flesh... Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, I personally am convinced David will be there. It's a good chance David's going to be higher up somewhere in the in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. I know I say that and sometimes people go, really? That's kind of weird. You think David's going to be there? What, do you have a problem with resurrection? <laughs> if I'm going to be there... David will be there. And perhaps he'll even have a princely role, but Jesus is the greater than David. Jesus is the one shepherd. As Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called And the name is Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. The branch is Jesus the Messiah, right? But he's going to be called Yahweh, which tells us what about the nature of Jesus? That he's God. Exactly. He's God. Verse 25, continuing on, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill, that is Jerusalem, a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. How many times has God said that (laughs) through Ezekiel? They will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. That's the point. That they will know that I am the Lord. That's why judgment falls. That they will know that I am the Lord. That's why grace is extended. That they will know that I am the Lord. That's why salvation is offered to all men. And I've told you this before. Salvation is not the point. 
The lordship of God is the point. Salvation is just one way that that is indicated. It's His glory that matters. And I lost my place. 27, also the tree of the field, thank you, will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the land of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely. And no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Now, the blessings in this whole closing section here, they are all a beautiful, literal description of the millennial kingdom. God has the kingdom in view. And through the prophet, he's describing that coming kingdom. And when people say, Rick, why do you believe in a literal thousand year reign of Jesus right here on planet earth? This is why. There's nothing allegorical about what Ezekiel is prophesying here. God says, I'm going to bring them back to the mountains of Israel. They're going to live on this land. And this land is going to be fruitful and beautiful. And I'm going to bring the rains in their season. And it's going to be showers of blessing. I'm going to do this. Why, Lord? That they will know that I am the Lord. The kingdom is not promised to the church. Did you know that? Oh, we get to be a part of it. Don't get me wrong. We get the, the distinct role, Revelation tells us, of being in the royal government. It's marvelous. But the kingdom promise was to Israel. It has always been to Israel. And its fulfillment must be to Israel because God made a covenant. And though Israel breaks their covenants, God doesn't break His. He made a promise. The kingdom is coming, gang. Great shepherd. He's been regathering his flock for over a century now. We've been watching the people coming back to the land. What a bizarre thing. Think about how strange this is. Jews are coming from around the world to live in tiny Israel, the most threatened place on the planet. Why? Stay in New York, man. Although New York may not be much safer. Four things are described here real quickly as the future conditions of their safe pasture. Israel will no longer be a prey to the nations. And think about this. Where will Syria, Iran, or perhaps even Russia direct pressure if Syria is bombed by the United States? Israel. Israel. That's first. The first place that will be retaliated against will be Israel. Even if they have nothing to do with the bombing, Israel gets the first hit. The prey of the nations. What if Israel unilaterally took out Iran's nukes? <laughs> Gog Magog invasion. What's that? We'll talk about it in a couple of chapters. Israel will no longer, we're told in verse 28, be devoured by the beasts of the earth. Now note this. It, it explicitly refers to carnivorous animals, but it implicitly refers to the nations. Because as you will see when we get to the book of Daniel, when God looks at the nations, He sees beasts. 
the nations are described as beasts to the Lord. And here, the beasts will no longer devour Israel. There are those who are inside the land who are beastly, who are trying to see Israel devoured and driven out. The third thing is Israel will no longer live with famine in the land. Verse 29 says, No famine! This is going to be the ideal place on planet earth. No famine. I read that and I thought, is there a famine in Israel today? Yes, there is. In fact, there's the same famine in Israel today that I believe we're having in America today. Amos 8 verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. There's a famine of the word going on. Israel will no longer endure the insults of the nations. That's also in there. And I think, what other countries insulted more? It's just amazing. No other people like the Jewish people. But God said in verse 25, look back there, He said, I will make a covenant of peace with them and bring all these things about. All the dangers, the threats, the reproaches will cease under the rule of the shepherd king, the Lord Jesus. But something has to happen for this to take place. Something has to happen first. We have watched Israel regathered. They need to be reborn. They're returning to the land in droves. It is now time for them to return to the chief shepherd. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.25, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And that's what I'm praying for Israel. And that's what needs to happen in the land. And we're going to read the amazing prophecy of the Valley of the Dry Bones, where you will see a picture of this in just a couple of weeks or so, as soon as we can get there. One final note for us all tonight, as, as we close our Bibles, notice that Peter called Jesus the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The shepherd and guardian of your souls. Once you have given your spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ, once that takes place, Jesus Himself becomes the shepherd and guardian of your soul. That is of your thought life, of the seat of your intellect. He's the shepherd and guardian in the place where we feel most stressed. He's the shepherd and guardian in that place where worry tends to figure in. He's the shepherd and guardian in the mentality that so easily and so quickly gets worn out in these days. And I see it. I see it on your faces when you walk in on a Wednesday night. And I see that it's left your faces oftentimes by the time you walk out on a Wednesday night. Because we are reminded once again that Jesus is the shepherd and guardian. The shepherd and guardian of your souls. If you're feeling stressed or worked up or worn down tonight, the way to green pastures is simply through the shepherd and guardian, Jesus Christ. Because the sheep are really only a piece when they draw near to their shepherd.